0: Hi friends! Thrilled we are again together for another study in our continuing exploration of the book of John. I'm Colin, and we are again in the 11th chapter taking another look at the story of Lazarus. Through Lazarus' death and resurrection, we learn so much about the heart of Jesus. Jesus wept over the situation, angry at what sin and Satan had done to that which he loved. As in Lazarus' case then, Jesus today still grieves at the ravages of sin and death. Death is mankind's reality, but Jesus has given us a way to escape. As Pastor Brian Broderson tells us, when Jesus declares he is the resurrection and the life, he offers us victory over the grave and the promise of life eternal. It's the good news of the gospel. How many of you have read the story that we just read before? Everybody read this story? Most of you have read it. You know, something happens to us, I think, as as Christians, as time goes by, you know, we we sort of lose the wonder of, of some of the things that we read in Scripture. But I want to remind us of the wonder of what we just read together today search the annals of nations, tribes, peoples, go as far and wide and deep into every civilization, culture, and people group, and nowhere will you find anything like what we have before us here. Nowhere. Nothing. I mean, you don't think about this for a moment, and we're going to talk more about this in a second, but just the reality of death. I mean, this is a it's a real thing, right? Everybody faces it. Everybody lives with a, a, a certain dread of it. And just think, there is actually a book, you have one in your lap, that tells the story of a man who was dead and buried and four days in a tomb And another man called him forth from the grave. There's nothing like it. Nowhere. In the annals of history, you will not find another story that is comparable to this story. But what happens after a while, we just become familiar with our belief and we read it and we're like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, Lazarus. Got raised from the dead, all right. Let's move on, see what happens next. Oh, we we literally should just be shouting from the rooftops, hey, everybody, read this story. Look at what happened here. And actually, as we look at the story, that is kind of what happened at the time. So not only do we have a man who had been dead for four days, raised to life again. But we have the one who raised him claiming to be the resurrection and the life and saying that those who believe in him will never die. This is, of course, another one of the I am statements of Christ. So we've we've been looking at those as we've been making our way through the gospel of John, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate or the door, I am the good shepherd, and now here we have another, I am the resurrection and the life. And remember, when Jesus uses this I am formula, what he's doing is he is identifying himself as the God of Israel, because if you'll remember, back when Moses came across that burning bush, In the wilderness, that was the the presence of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses says, who should I say sent me? And remember the answer that was given to him. Say, I am, has sent you. So every time Jesus says, I am, like he does here, he is identifying himself as the God of Israel. The story surrounding the statement is one, as I've said, that has no parallel in history. So here's what we're gonna do. I wanna look at some of the details of the story, and of course, Cheryl did an amazing job a few weeks ago when she took us through pretty much these same verses I was out of town, maybe you remember, but I got to to watch um, online afterward, and um, what a great job she did. So I don't want to, as she suspected I might, I don't want to come back and just talk about the things that she talked about, but there are a few things here just in the story that stand out, so we're going to look at a few things in the story And then I want to come back and we're going to land on um, the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And we're going to ultimately apply that. So in the story, let's go back and remember where it all started. Message came to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And this message came from these two women Martha and Mary who lived in a village called Bethany and the message was about their brother Lazarus and what we see from the text is that Jesus had some deep relationship with this family and we, we don't know any more of the details we don't know how Jesus came to be so close to them But they were so close that when they sent the message to Jesus, they simply referred to their brother as the one you love. So there was a beautiful thing that was going on between Jesus and the members of this family. But what I want to just point out is that as we look at the the interaction between Jesus and Martha more so, Mary slightly, we see that they were confused and they were conflicted. So in verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. "'Lord,' Martha said to Jesus,' If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's confused. Lord, why why didn't you come when we called you? This, this tragic, horrific situation could have been avoided. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And now Jesus, of course, he says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that. Martha, as a, as a Jew, Jewish people believed in a resurrection. They still believe in a resurrection if they're religious Jews. They believed in a resurrection on the last day, the final day. But what Martha doesn't believe Evidently, is that anything could happen today. Now she says, I know that whatever God asks of you, or, or whatever you ask of God, I know that He'll give you. But then when Jesus actually tells her what to do, she says, Oh no, we can't do that. So so you see that she's conflicted. And and Mary doesn't do exactly the same thing, but she, when she comes to Jesus in verse 32, she says the same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so what we we see with them is basically, as Martha would go on to say, after Jesus declares to her that he is the resurrection and the life, uh, Martha will go on to say, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah who is to come into the world. But here's the problem. We believe you are the Messiah, but you're not doing Messiah-type things. So you see, there's a a conflict here. They they believe in one sense, but in another sense, they're struggling. And it's not uncommon for us to find ourselves in similar circumstances, is it? Where we believe. Well, of course, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Savior. We believe that Jesus is God in, in human flesh. But sometimes things are happening around us that seem like they shouldn't be happening if Jesus was really in control. And so we can identify, I think. I know I can. I've, I've had times in my life where I'm just like, yes, Lord, I know. Yes, you are. And, and, but Lord, but what about this? This doesn't make any sense to me. So if you've ever felt that way, know that you're not the only one that's ever felt that way. Martha and Mary felt exactly like that. Now, Jesus, I, I love what Jesus says. To Martha, because she she's talking about this resurrection, this thing in in the distance. I, I know that that my brother's gonna rise on the resurrection at the resurrection on the last day, and I love what Jesus says, and I think he kind of said it like this. I think he kind of looked at Martha, and and just said, Martha, I am the resurrection. I mean, think about that. Martha's thinking of the resurrection as uh, just an event. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. How powerful is that? I am the resurrection. Now, we'll come back to that. But the second thing I want us to notice is the emotional response of Jesus to the pain and grief surrounding Lazarus' death. In verse 32... We read here that as Jesus is there at the tomb, that he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. That's what our translation reads. There are different ways that these words have been translated because the the original language has uh, nuance to it. The NET, so we're reading from the NIV, the New International Version. The NET, the New English Translation, translates it this way. He was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. But the message, I think, um, the, the message translation, Eugene Peterson, gets at something that neither one of these get at, and the message translation is a deep anger welled up within him. That is implied in the word. A deep anger welled up within Jesus. What was he angry? <coughs> was he angry at Martha and Mary for not believing in him? Was it, don't you trust me? I'm going to sort this out, get over it. No, of course not. It wasn't that at all. What Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, what Jesus was angry at and what Jesus wept over was not just simply the, the grief of the moment and we know it couldn't be that because Jesus is going to fix it in just a few minutes. And mourning is going to be turned to rejoicing. But nevertheless, he, he's angered and he weeps. He's angry at what sin and Satan had done to that which he loved. That's what God is angry about. He's angry at what sin has done. There's one other place, only one other place, where we are told that Jesus wept. The other place where Jesus wept is he wept over the city of Jerusalem, knowing that because of their failure to recognize who he was that they would experience destruction and death. He wept over them. He said, if you had only known in this your day the things that belong to your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And that broke the heart of Jesus. You see, sin and the devastation that comes from sin it breaks the heart of jesus we we too often have the wrong response to sin we have an angry response and not to say that anger isn't right at times and, and there is an anger here but our anger is it's misdirected many times we're angry at the sinner, but our anger really should be directed at the sin, at the devil that has taken captive the sinner and is using them for their purposes. See, because if we're just angry at the sinner, We're never going to think of the sinner as somebody who needs to be saved. We're going to think of the sinner as somebody that needs to be judged and condemned and destroyed. And as sin multiplies in our culture today, and as we see things going from bad to worse to insane, There's a strong temptation to be angry at the people that we perceive to be causing the trouble. But we have to remember that they are the victims of the devil. They've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. This is why Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not with those people who vote the wrong way. (laughs) Many people think that that is where the battle lies. One well-known evangelical leader this week pretty much made it clear, if you don't vote the right way, the way he thinks you should vote, then you're unfaithful to God. But, But isn't that what happens so often? people doing things that we don't think they should do. And we're, a lot of times we're right. They should not do that. But our anger is misdirected when it's directed at them in the sense that all we want for them is judgment. Jesus looks at this And yes, he's angry, but he's angry at the forces behind the whole tragic thing. He's angry at sin. He's angry at Satan. Thirdly, Jesus does and can do the unthinkable. Verse 9 or verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Here's where we see Martha's conflicted heart. Martha said, but Lord, by this time, There is a bad odor, for he has been dead four days. But what does Jesus say? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and he prayed. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Nobody expected that to happen that day. Whatever they hoped that Jesus would do, whatever they wanted to do for them, it was was a missed opportunity because Jesus could have done something had he only come when they sent for him. Lazarus wouldn't have died. But nobody would have dreamed. Now, let's remember, Jesus has already raised people from the dead. But you know, like today, there were skeptics back then who probably thought, like they did when Jesus went into the house of Jairus and raised up his little girl, well, she wasn't really dead. She, you know, she was kind of like in a coma or something and Jesus Jesus just pulled her out of it. Or the, the widow's son, the widow of Nain. They were. They were. He. He had just died. They were taking him off to be buried because you know in Israel you get buried the day you die. You don't go and get all of the things that we do today. They just take your body and wrap it up and put it in a in a grave. So there could have been some thought. Well, you know maybe he, he this young man. What maybe he wasn't really dead. But with Lazarus, there's absolutely no. There's there's no question about it. He's been in the tomb for days. His body has already begun to decompose. Jesus does the unthinkable. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. We need to expect Jesus to do the unexpected. We... I, I do think we've we really have tamed Jesus. We not really, because of course you can't tame him. But in our own minds, we've tamed him. We've just like well, Jesus he used to do stuff like that, but he he doesn't really do that stuff anymore. Now, when it comes to resurrection, somebody might say, well, what about today? How come we don't see people risen from rising from the dead today? Well. I think the one thing we should say about that is we don't know all the facts of what goes on all around the world. There's a scholar named Craig Keener, a brilliant theologian and scholar. A lot of times theologians and scholars tend to, not, not always, but they, they do a lot of times tend to downplay the supernatural in Scripture. Sometimes they attribute it to the superstition of previous generations or whatever. But, you know, we're smarter than that now, so we know that it probably wasn't quite like that. Um, and, and this Craig Keener, I, I think, did hold a similar kind of a view at one time. But he began to see in these different places. He married an African woman. Uh, And seeing things happening in her country and among her people, it began to open him up to the supernatural. So anyway, he ended up writing this massive work, an encyclopedia on miraculous works, things that are happening today. And he actually records a couple of resurrections. And he, he is quite legitimate. He's not the kind of guy that's going to make something up. So he's going to have it researched, documented, first-hand accounts and so forth. So all of that to say, these things can still happen today, maybe in places like Bethany that were obscure. Places that we don't know anything about. People groups that we don't know anything about where the word would not travel far and wide because there's really nowhere for it to travel. But whether it's that type of thing that's happening, we do need to remember that the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the tomb is the Jesus that we follow today. And we need to... Expect him to do the unexpected, to do things that I wouldn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have thought that. I, I. I didn't know that it would would go that direction. Jesus does those types of things. So, this brings me back around to where I want to just camp out for a few minutes. Back to the great statement. In verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Out of all of the I am statements, this one is the most astounding to me. Astounding because it answers the deepest questions and fears that we all live with. Questions and fears about death. Think about this. There is a universal sense of the wrongness of death. Everyone, everywhere, for all of time, thinks death is wrong. The ancients thought that, and the moderns think that. People once in a while come along with their philosophy or their idea or their scientific take on it and try to dismiss it as, well, it's really not that big of a deal. It's just all part of the cycle of life and so forth. And that's all great until death ends up right at their doorstep. And then the tune changes quite quickly. We cannot adjust to death no matter how hard we try. And it doesn't matter. Now, we all understand if a, if a child dies, that, that that's just wrong. But, you know, there's a very similar response to very aged people who die. Think of Queen Elizabeth who died last week. 96 years old, 70 years as the reigning queen, but yet sadness has descended upon millions around her death. I mean, you, you kind of might think that, well, you know, she lived a great life. She lived a long life. It's about, yeah, it's time. It's just the way it is. But that, that's not the way it is. Perhaps you've read about the cue. You know, queuing is an is a English, British term for getting in a line. Queuing up. Well, if you go on, any... Live feed of what's happening right now in London, there is what they are now just simply calling the queue. It is a line of people at least five miles long, and they're queuing up to pay their respects to the queen who is lying in state in Westminster Hall. People are waiting 8 to 12 hours to simply walk by the coffin of the queen and to pay their respects. A nation in mourning. Why? Death is just natural, right? It's just, why, why do we act this way if death is natural? Well, the fact that we act this way is proof that death is not natural. It is unnatural. It is, as one theologian put it, it is an intruder. Death has intruded into God's good creation. Death was not a part of God's original plan for his creation and those made in his image. That's why we cannot Adjust to it. We're not meant to adjust to it. Paul stated it like this in Romans 5, 12. He said, sin entered the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin. And this is the way death came to all people. See, death came through sin. Sin came through one man. Death is the byproduct of sin. God created a sinless world. And he created the first two human beings sinless, but they sinned. And when they sinned, they introduced death. God had declared to them that they could eat of all the trees in the garden but not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will die. That's how death came in. So death is the enemy. That's why we feel the way we feel about it. It's, death is an intruder. Death is the enemy. Death is not our friend. But death is the enemy that Christ came to defeat. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is talking about the fact that he has come to fulfill the word of the Lord through the prophets that said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death I will be your plagues, O grave, I will be your destruction. Jesus comes into the world to destroy death. That was his primary mission, to destroy death. The destruction of death would come through Christ's resurrection, The Apostle Paul would later write of Christ as the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Now, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. You know, one day... that just hit me in a way that it hadn't necessarily hit me before. When we, when we talk about people having died, we really are using the wrong language for, about people who believe in Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will never die. But you say, well, wait a second. We're talking about the Queen of England. She was a believer. Her testimony was amazing. But She died. Well, no, she didn't die. She died in a physical sense, but she goes on living in the presence of the Lord. There's two definitions of death. Pastor Chuck used to remind us of this all the time, the two definitions of death. One is uh, the definition of your, your spirit or soul being removed from your body. That's our definition of death, God's definition of death is your spirit and soul being disconnected from him. And that's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. They died. Their physical bodies went on living for a long time, but they were separated from God. Lazarus's resurrection foreshadowed a greater resurrection that would follow shortly. Of course, I'm speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. And the interesting thing is that it foreshadowed the resurrection of Jesus in as much as the prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16, verse 10 said this. You will not leave me the messiah speaking you will not leave me in the grave nor will you allow your holy one to experience decay so what what's the fear of martha lord you can't we can't roll away the stone he's already decayed but jesus calls him forth and of course he comes forth and he's not decayed Maybe that process had already begun, and in the, the restoration, that was, took place also. But I think in Lazarus, we're seeing this whole thing of, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And Lazarus's resurrection confirmed Christ's claim to be the resurrection and the life. This is the thing we need to remember about Jesus. Jesus didn't simply make claims. He had acts to back up what he said. Now, any one of us, nobody, it's interesting nobody's ever done this, but any, any one of us could conceivably have stood at a graveside and said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then that was the end of it. And people would think, okay, they've lost it. They're nuts. But Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he proves it. He calls a dead man out of the tomb. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he would also ultimately prove it by raising himself from the dead. Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life is so radical that it does not allow the hearer to hold a neutral position concerning him. As C.S. Lewis said, there are only three possibilities with Jesus. He is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Any serious consideration of his words and actions will almost certainly force one to admit, like it or not, that he is the Lord. He is the Lord. And as we close today, of course, as we're talking about Jesus destroying death, he destroys it by dying himself. By facing it head on, but then by rising again. And the bread and the cup that we have here before us today, what do they remind us of? They remind us of that death of Jesus, that he died, the body represented by the bread, the blood represented by the cup. And so today, as we partake together of the bread and the cup during this time, think about this. The one that we are remembering The one that we are spiritually partaking of through the bread and the cup is the one who conquered the grave. Remember this story in the Bible that you carry around the greatest story imaginable. Death is defeated. By the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he gives us life. You know, it's interesting how the NIV reads the second part of the verse. The translation here is different than all other translations. It says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Whoever lives by believing in me, that's how we have eternal life, by believing in Jesus. And I know that most of us, we've done that. We believe in Jesus. He's given us eternal life. This bread and this cup are just an opportunity for us to remember that and to reflect on that and to thank him for that. But maybe you're with us and and you've never received that life. Well, that life comes by believing in him, putting your trust in him, surrendering your life to him. And so, Lord, as we partake now of the bread and the cup, thank you, Lord, for this amazing true story. And, Lord, your answer to our biggest dread, death. Thank you, Jesus, that you abolished death and you gave a foretaste of it when you raised Lazarus from the dead. So as we partake now of the bread and the cup, fill our hearts with faith afresh, we pray in your name.